This Week in Oklahoma Politics on KOSU is sponsored by the State Chamber of Oklahoma. For KOSU, I'm Michael Krause, and it's time for This Week in Oklahoma Politics, along with Republican political consultant Neva Hill and civil rights attorney Ryan Kiesel. A controversy is growing over a new law to end discussion of race and racism in Oklahoma classrooms. Despite calls from the black community to veto House Bill 1775, the governor signed the measure banning so-called critical race theory into law earlier this week. The OKC school board unanimously condemned Stitt's move and the Tulsa Race Massacre Commission is threatening to remove Stitt from his seat. Ryan, what are your thoughts on this fallout? Well, I mean, I think that this was predictable, and and it's probably what the authors of the bill hoped would happen all along. I think that there were a few points that that are worth being made. One, for educators out there, whether you're in a public school or whether you're uh, at a museum or something like that, and and you're publicly funded, and you think that you have some new restrictions on you based on this House Bill 1775, I look at the words of, of the governor and the legislative authors that are saying, we're not intending to stop you from teaching difficult parts of Oklahoma history. Teach them. Call their bluff. If that's really what they mean, go ahead and teach those subjects and let's see what happens. And uh, and we'll go from there. But, you know, the, the authors of this bill are saying that that's not what they intended to do. Folks that are on the other side of this are saying that's exactly what they're trying to tend to do is to, to squelch these difficult and awful parts of Oklahoma and American history from being taught in, in public schools because it might create some discomfort among the students. Um, and so that's that's the two sides. I think the reality here, this is the second point, is that this is a part of a, a national political movement led largely by Republicans, if not exclusively by Republicans, uh, to push the, the issue of uh, critical race theory and, and the difficult politics around identity politics to the forefront. And when we saw this at the national stage with the Republican response to President Joe Biden's speech to Congress over infrastructure. I mean, they they pre-wrote a speech thinking that he was going to, that President Biden was going to, you know, seize on identity politics and and the, um, you know, the the issues and, and things like critical race theory. And they wanted to respond to that because that that's an issue that they feel like is a wedge. Because whenever we get to the fall, uh, next fall, and we see campaigns, the campaign that Republicans are going to run against Democrats that voted against this bill won't have anything won't have any language in there about the Tulsa race massacre. Uh, the language that they're going to talk about is the language that I think most, if not all Democrats in the house would agree with that would say things like, you know, no one should be taught to be superior to another person because of that person's gender or race. And they're going to use that in mailers. And I think Democrats are going to have a hard time talking about that. In the meantime, you know, we see kind of the, the back and forth, you know, the, the governor's office responded to a reporter from the black wall street times, a, a reputable newspaper here in Oklahoma and said that they don't give interviews to activists, only journalists. Um, and then you have outrage on both sides over that. And everybody's exactly where they stood uh, to begin with. You know, these are this is an issue to drive turnout. And largely, Republicans feel like it's one that they win on. Neva? Well, I think, uh, I, th- I think what we have here, unfortunately, to the backdrop of the uh, Centennial Commission uh, and the activities that are going to go on in just a few weeks to to uh, commemorate the hundred year uh, the hundred years, uh, we have this ultimatum coming down from a project manager of this commission, basically uh, taking taking the governor head on and saying, if you don't show and if you don't uh, uh, speak to members of the commission uh, and come to the meeting, then basically um, we're going to assume that uh, you no longer want to be on the commission. Um, I mean, the governor, 
the First Lady, others uh, uh, have been actively involved on this commission from the uh, from the beginning, been very involved. Uh, Governor, I think, made it clear and, and, and said that he was disappointed that uh, uh, that this attempt was being made and kind of this controversy was continuing to be generated and made the point that it appeared that uh, uh, certainly that this project manager was not speaking for every member of the commission. And so I think, I mean, I think you have that as the backdrop, and then you have this continued attempt to confuse really what uh, House Bill, the House Bill actually says says uh, House Bill 1775. I mean, it is clear, I mean, what what it is uh, uh, doing and what it says is, um, you know, the, the points that we've made before. I mean, it doesn't censure history or make it difficult for teachers to, to teach about these painful moments in our past. I mean, that is, that's clear. Uh, the bill also uh, does ensure that uh, teachers, uh, that one race is not going to be taught as inher- inherently superior to another race. That also, that it's unacceptable to uh, uh, to judge peers based on uh, race or sex. I mean, these things, I mean, have been clearly outlined. The uh, cabinet secretary, uh, Ryan Walters, the education secretary, Secretary for the Governor has uh, written op-ed pieces, I think, clearly outlining uh, these points as well. And one of the points he made recently was the fact that uh, that it is our responsibility to teach our past without prejudicing prejudicing uh, those responsible for our future. So, I, you know, I think we're trying to make much too much out of this. Uh, someone, uh, you know, told me the other day that uh, this just seems like a controversy in search of a, an, you know, a bigger controversy rather than the bill speaking for itself. The legislation's been passed, signed by the governor. Teachers are not being precluded from teaching in the classroom. All of these uh, uh, episodes in history that uh, c- continue to be tossed out there as maybe being uh, uh, some some effort to thwart uh, talking about them. And hopefully in Oklahoma, regardless of what happens across the country, hopefully this will you know this will uh, wind down and we'll continue to pay more attention to the fact that we continue to uh, uh, teach the Oklahoma standard and move forward in educating our kids. What I'm hearing from just about everybody is this changes nothing. This bill changes nothing. So the question is, why the bill? Well, I think it's a a controversy in search of a campaign. I think that that's what it is. I think that um, Republicans recognize that this is an issue that that drives turnout among their base. It's incredibly popular to talk about the overreach of the social justice left uh, among the, the core Republican constituencies. I mean, that's, that's, a, that's a driving topic for them. Which is real. And, and I think, well, I mean, I think that there are limited examples of that overreach, but I do think that we're also in the middle of an important uh, racial awakening and, and reckoning in this country right now where we're beginning to have uh, more important, difficult conversations and coming to terms with the systems that are all around us and how race has played a role in, in, uh, in driving those systems and propping them up over the years. And, and how, how do we move forward as a country now, you know, kind of recognizing and, uh, and, and acknowledging those things. But, um, you know, the, the far right, they'll look at things like, you know, trying to remove President Lincoln's name from a school in California, right? So this one little example, they'll blow that. And that's kind of what the, the context of this identity politics campaign from the the right is. I mean, they they really want Joe Biden to come out and say America is a racist country, uh, and and he's just not going to say it. And I think that what we see in, in a bill like this is an effort to bring that kind of identity politics controversy that we see at a national level to a local political level. And and this is this is really uh, if it doesn't do anything, it's going to create some uh, some 
targeted political ads that I, I think you'll largely see, if not exclusively see, from Republicans, and maybe even in primaries as well, but then going into general elections with Democrats. And, and I think we also have, we have the factor of this national agenda that clearly is there. I mean, we've seen it on college campuses for years. I mean, this this very radical concept of uh, government-mandated, uh, really, indoctrination is not a, is not too strong a word, I mean, for what they would attempt to do in trying to just uh, change the whole narrative in, in what they do in terms of teaching history. And, you know, I think there's, I think this is a clear reflection in Oklahoma about where Oklahomans are on the issue. They don't want to see this. They want a clear understanding of what's going to take place in the classroom. I think it's been, uh, I think it's been stated not only in this bill, but everyone that has tried to explain this. And, um, really, I mean, I think we're quickly exhausting the narrative on this unless unless there's something that comes, again, from outside the state or from a national agenda that gets imposed into the conversation, and that would be regrettable. And, and I think most regrettable of all is the fact that they have used this time uh, coming up on the centennial um, uh, the centennial uh, commemoration to use that as the backdrop to stem this whole conversation. I mean, I think it's regrettable given the the work that has been done by so many to try to uh, bring this uh, kind of bring this moment in history uh, to the forefront and and address it in an appropriate way. Leadership in the state house plans to take up legislation to consider recommendations from a multi-county grand jury concerning Epic Virtual Charter School. The recommendations came after a scathing report from the state auditor and a near termination of the school's contract with Oklahoma. Neva, what can we expect to see in this bill? Well, I, I don't I don't have any idea at this point. And <laughs> yeah, I think the fact that it's so late in session, um, I think what we what we see is there uh, is this ongoing conversation. I don't think we're going to get any definitive legislation probably uh, uh, right now, whether they choose to take that up in the interim uh, or they come back in special session in October or when it, whenever it is to uh, uh, handle redistricting, whether that's something that comes up or it's next year. Um, it is an ongoing conversation and an ongoing a legitimate concern, and this was really a, a, a preliminary report of the multi-county grand jury. This uh, this grand jury is still continuing to meet. Uh, we've the OSBI has been uh, uh, investigating uh, things related to uh, Epic since 2019. So it has uh, it has been a long, ongoing investigation, and I think I think that we already have seen, and in some of the bills that already uh, have been uh, discussed this year. The, there certainly has been an appetite to try to uh, deal with transparency, try to deal with reforms that are broad, not just directed at one uh, one charter school or one learning uh, center, but uh, dealing with the broader picture of how do how do we address this going forward, given the fact that now the largest district, the largest school entity in the state of Oklahoma is not brick and mortar, but is, uh, uh, is epic. Mm -hmm. Ryan. Well, in the largest school district uh, is also in the middle of, you know, multiple pieces of uh, what an administrative action to possibly cancel their contract. Uh, and then you have a multi-county grand jury that's months into its investigation and isn't even done yet. And one of the reasons that they say that they're not done is because of uh, the uh, obstruction tactics put in place by Epic and their, their multiple entities to prevent the multi-county grand jury and the state auditor and inspector and legislate everybody, the media, from having access 
to these documents that deal with the expenditure of public dollars that the state of Oklahoma took from the taxpayers of Oklahoma and, and, and allocated to education. And, you know, that, now they're just sitting out there uh, without any sort of transparency. I mean, Representative Sheila Dills, who's uh, run a couple of bills in the past that, uh, that dealt with you know, trying to promote some transparency and accountability uh, to the virtual schools like EPIC, and she had some bills dealing with the fallout at the beginning of the session. They they weren't ever heard. She was pulled off the house education or the uh, the the uh, house education committee and just you know with without really an exp- explanation from what I understand. And but she's saying now that there's a a movement afoot that there's some legislative vehicles that would be eligible to put some language in to deal with some immediate transparency issues. But I agree with Neva. You know the bigger conversation on this is probably going to wait until next year. I think that this was a topic that. Uh, I'm surprised didn't become one of the defining uh, legislative movements of this le- of this session. Uh, and you know, if it had been introduced uh, and heard, and we saw the the debates in committee and on both floors, this would have been something that would have lasted from you know they probably wouldn't have got this to the governor's desk real fast. It would have been you know months of back and forth, uh, you know, intense lobbying efforts on both sides. Um, and so to think that we're going to get something really big in the last two weeks of session, assuming that they're even in for two more weeks, uh, seems unlikely at this point. Well, and I think this this report, I mean, really is something everyone should pay attention to. I mean, when you have a multi-county grand jury coming out with language and basically talking about how that they regretted their um, inability at this point to complete their work mm-hmm. and basically uh, saying that it was a lack of cooperation uh, that uh, with the oversight entities, that uh, the, indes- the investigation had had difficulty there had been intentional diversion of public funds and on and on that they went. I mean, they were very strong in their language in this report to make the uh, point that this is serious business. Uh, we haven't finished it. And uh, I think it does uh, uh, beg the larger question of what the legislature ultimately uh, will have as far as information from the investigation in addition to what the state auditor and inspector has already uh, had uh, available to them to uh, read and digest. But this is an issue we're going to be talking about into the next session and maybe uh, beyond because of all of the ramifications. And, and it's quite extraordinary to have a grand jury, a multi-county grand jury, talking directly to the legislature. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's that's a I, I can't think of another instance where you've you've had uh, a situation like that where the multi-county grand jury is 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 basically raising their hand and saying, "Hey, I got I know you guys are about to leave and go home, but you know, and and our reports, our final report's not out, but." There's important things that you need to be aware of. Well, right and now. their and their frustration came through. I think in mm-hmm. some of that uh, mm-hmm. in some of that language in the in the report. I mean, the fact that they had not been able to do the work at the at the uh, um, at the in the time frame that they had hoped for is significant. And and you're right, Ryan. I mean, this doesn't happen every day, so it even compounds the seriousness of the issue that we're talking about. Congressman Tom Cole is introducing legislation to allow the Cherokee and Chickasaw nations to compact with Oklahoma over criminal jurisdiction. The measure has support from tribal leaders. It comes after a U.S. Supreme Court ruling last year over reservations in in the state to reshape jurisdiction within their boundaries. Ryan, what do you think of this move by Congressman Cole? Yeah, I think it's really interesting. I, you, you look at you know, two of the state's you know, largest and, and most influential tribal uh, governments that are behind it, the Chickasaw Nation and the Cherokee Nation. Uh, I think that with that support, uh, th- this is likely to move through Congress and, and probably pass in, in some similar fashion to what we're looking uh, at right now. It's important to note that what this uh, would and wouldn't do, uh, it would create a framework uh, for compacting between the state of Oklahoma and these two, just these two uh, sovereign tribes, 
because you know they're they're the only ones yeah, named in the bill. Not the other five. Not the other. Yeah. So they're, they're three siblings. Yeah. So they're they're not they're not mentioned in this. So um, yeah, this would be between the Chickasaws and the Cherokees and their ability to negotiate a treaty between two sovereign governments, the state of Oklahoma and, and their governments, uh, outlining how they were going to deal with jurisdiction with crimes committed by. Uh, um, Indians, uh, uh, or, or in this case, you know, members of, of the two tribes in on their tribal property uh, and their reservation status. So this is, a, I think, an exciting thing because what it would do, the tribes don't have to. I mean, we could, we could get to a point where this bill passes and the tribal governments or the state of Oklahoma or both say, we're just going to keep things the way that they are. We're going to deal with uh, things under the rubric of the Major Crimes Act, and we're going to have jurisdiction at the federal level for this, or at the tribal level for this, or at the state level for this, and we can just have a status quo. It would also give tribes, though, the ability to negotiate, I think, some you know, pretty creative and interesting uh, uh, criminal justice models. You know, I think, uh, you know, like restorative justice. You know, they, they could compact with the state in exchange for if the state wants to prosecute these crimes, then the state has to agree to you know X, Y, and Z in terms of their procedures or their laws or how they're going to move forward. Um, and so the tribes could have a, a huge uh, influence here on on creating some you know uh, experiments uh, in criminal justice reform at a at a really big level mm-hmm. um, through their compacting leverage. Neva. Well, and I think I think what we are seeing is exactly what you said, Ryan. In that Congress wants this issue resolved. But Congress, I think, is waiting for um, for the proposal, for the ideas to come forward that are agreeable to uh, to all of the parties. This is not something where they're going to, uh, you know, look to just impose their, their will on the situation, but it does have such uh, uh, dramatic implications. I mean, for the tribes, for the state, uh, for the federal uh, component. And I think uh, the sooner they can get resolution and clarity on this, the better. And so I think Congressman and Cole has uh, taken taken the lead um, and certainly has done, uh, you know, I think a, ver- a very strong job of uh, putting forward a bill, uh, at least in this instance, that starts to move the needle. So we'll see how quickly uh, how quickly that happens. But uh, we talked about it, the McGirt uh, case, clearly that the Supreme Court decision last year uh, has uh, started and opened uh, Pandora's box on so many issues, I think, from a legal standpoint, that need to, that need to be resolved. And I think uh, when we look at it, even from the state perspective, uh, the uh, Joint Committee on State Tribal Relations has been, um, has been reaffirmed. So that will be part of the process and in terms of infusing uh, that com- that uh, uh, committee into uh, uh, the conversations, at least at the state level. So um, I think the long and the short is everyone that has a vested interest hopes that uh, this can move forward and we can get some resolution fairly quickly. The state health department is opening Pfizer vaccines for the coronavirus to kids aged 12 to 15. This comes after the FDA granted emergency use authorization to the company earlier this week. While the Oklahoma's vaccination rate jumped up quickly, it has since declined dramatically as leaders have stayed mostly quiet about it. Neva, do you see more kids getting shots with this move? Well, I think uh, the availability will make it where any any child in in the 12 to 15 category the, that uh, um, that uh, 
their parents and they choose to get the vaccine, have the vaccination, uh, will have the availability. I mean, readily. And so I think it remains to be seen, as we've as we've talked about before. Uh, clearly, there is a uh, a segment of the population that do not intend to get vaccinated for a variety of reasons, and that no doubt will correspond to uh, 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 children and uh, and the effect uh, that it'll have in terms of the numbers vaccinated in that category, but. It does. It does. From a national standpoint, when you have 17 million more, uh, you know, uh, Americans who have the option to get vaccinated, uh, this 12 to 15 year uh, category, and that that's good news because it continues to do what everyone wants, and that is to get us to where we uh, can stop having this daily conversation about the impact of uh, the virus and and talk more about the the success we had of um, getting past this and and moving on. Ryan, it was terribly exciting. I, you know, I, I have two kids, six and nine. They're not eligible in this cohort just uh, yet. But um, you think about, you know, Neva said there are a lot of uh, Oklahomans and, and Americans that have just decided we're not going to get this vaccine uh, for, for whatever reason. I think a lot of it because of misinformation that, that's been propagated on the, the Internet and uh, without a lot of help from leadership to try to you know, dismantle that, that uh, kind of a framework of lies that that are preventing people from going out and getting vaccines. Um, we have to increase the number of eligible folks because that's how we're going to get new people in, in the doors to get shots in their arm. And uh, this is this is a big move. I think that when you look at things like high school athletics, uh, where you they talk about how with an athletic context you have a higher risk of transmission. Um, a lot of a lot of kids uh, and teenagers they get COVID. They're asymptomatic and they're carriers, so they're they're not experiencing any sort of medical difficulty, but they're out spreading COVID uh, to people, and and that's that's a concern. So this could cut down on that. The, the Pfizer trials on this, a hundred percent efficacy, right. uh, which is just incredible. Um, and uh, the the side effects are you know the same they are for adults. Uh, we've got uh, over a year of trials now in, in this vaccine. We know it's safe, um, and so getting getting kids uh, shots so they can get back to their normal lives. And so they're not uh, um, uh, either asymptomatic spreaders of COVID or in the rare case. I mean, we have seen young Oklahomans end up uh, in, in very serious health situations, but either because of the COVID that they had at the time or because of effects of COVID after it is gone. And so, I mean, there's, there's a real danger there. I'm excited that, you know, we're getting to the point where uh, hearing maybe this fall, uh, they're going to expand the cohort to two to 11 year olds you know, mm-hmm. by that time, you know, my kids will qualify there. And, you know, you know, my family, both my wife and I have our vaccines and uh, neither of my kids do those. So, I mean, we're still limited in kind of what we can do. So when we get to that point where both of our kids are, are vaccinated and, and our worries uh, about either them getting it or them getting it and spreading it uh, are abated you know, either quite a bit or altogether, you know, that's, that's kind of, you know, for me, a real marker of, you know, when we can start thinking about being much more normal in our activities. The countdown is on at the state capitol as lawmakers have only two weeks left till the end of the session. While many bills have made it out to Governor Stitt, there's still a lot to do. Ryan, what can we expect over the next couple of weeks? Well, as we're sitting here, I'm getting text messages about uh, <laughs> scheduled uh, JCAB meetings. That this is Thursday morning. We're taping Thursday morning. So by the time folks are listening to this, they there will be, and if you're listening in the morning on Friday, uh, uh, then it's already it's about to happen. If you're listening in the, the afternoon on Friday, it's already happened. There's a Joint Committee on Appropriations and Budget, the JCAB meeting, which is, uh, if, if you're looking at tea leaves, this is the biggest That's tea right. leaf of all, that there is a budget agreement. Uh, and so, um, you know, there's, you know, we may be seeing, you know, budgets uh, passed in the Senate and the House next week. Um, and, you know, that's, 
that's really the, the marker for the end of session. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are a, rem, a slew of remaining bills out there that are incredibly important that I think just saw their, their deadline window to get passed and get on the governor's desk get a lot smaller. Um, because once a budget has, has been uh, agreed upon and passed, everybody's really anxious to get out that door. You know, I'm, I'm thinking of House Bill 2646, which is the Oklahoma Medical Marijuana Authority's request bill, uh, a, a huge number of reforms and powers that they need to uh, uh, implement a, a more uh, you know, safe uh, and compliant-minded uh, medical marijuana system in the state of Oklahoma. They had a bill last year, House Bill 3228, that made it through the House and the Senate, ended up on the governor's desk and was vetoed. And so you know, the, the medical marijuana system in Oklahoma is, is a year out from like the real administrative reforms that OMA needs to be able to do their job appropriately. So you know, now we're clock's ticking. You know, the House Bill 2646 is in a conference committee in the House right now, still has to get over to the Senate and get passed out to get to the governor's desk. There are a lot of bills in that situation. And I, you know, authors and, and advocacy groups that see their legislation out there probably starting to sweat a little bit because, you know, they could possibly uh, be out Thursday of next week, you know, if they really wanted to. I think that that's unlikely, uh, but the, the window is beginning to, to really close here. And just a reminder, this is the first session of the legislative session. So actually, they can be carried over to could next be carried year without any problem. But of course, yes, time is, if you got to get a bill passed, because time is important, this is this is a two week countdown. That's right, and I think uh, and I think Ryan is right. I mean, I think the expectation is now that a budget deal has been struck, which everyone is uh, that seems to be the common feeling uh, uh, throughout the halls of the cap the Capitol uh, that we move through that process, uh, get the budget get the budget done, and then it's what's left uh, what's left on the table. And mm-hmm. I think there are some things, uh, and and some will you know may no doubt uh, not receive. Uh, um, uh, the um, uh, the movement that they would like. Uh, there's been still a lot of a lot of discussion this week about managed care, uh, Senate Bill 131. Mm-hmm. I mean, whether or not it even gets uh, uh, even gets heard. Uh, there's some feeling that uh, that the proposal for a state-run managed care system is not going to uh, not going to move. Um, been intense lobbying on both sides on that, obviously, and this has been um, a, a conversation from. From January, when the governor started to make uh, started to put things in place of what he wanted to see in terms of what managed care looked like for Oklahoma, and so you have that and many other many other bills that are still lingering that uh, are important to the folks that are trying to <laughs> trying to pass those pieces of legislation, and some of them will no doubt make it through. I mean, there are ones that just will continue, and at the last minute, there's this surge, and you see uh, you see a few of them get across the finish line, but uh, by and large i mean we're coming quickly to the end of this session and i think uh, i think that uh, lawmakers have that fatigue that they always have in, in may and are looking to get out don't want to uh, uh, go to the very last day of the month and certainly with uh, a, a long holiday weekend uh, being that last uh, few days i mean i think we can expect that they will wrap up work quickly and uh, and then we'll see them back uh, in the fall when they have to come back to uh, uh, deal with the redistricting and Neva and Ryan's comments do not necessarily reflect the views of KOSU, its staff, or management. Programs like this are made possible through support from KOSU members who are listeners like you. Consider a gift to KOSU in support of This Week in Oklahoma Politics at KOSU.org.